in the hall pass. You never like love that. someone well, so much you would want them to have an ultimate no. experience. I love someone so much that's me I love. I don't want to be hurt. <laughs> I don't want to hurt me. By, yeah, it would be really great to know that Beth got to fuck her whole pass. <laughs> I mean, my God. I thought you know, maybe a little generosity of spirit. And by the way, it's all bullshit. You know what, Aaron? In the in the one in a billion chance your husband met Scarlett Johansson and 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 she agreed to fuck him, you wouldn't even be okay with it. It would kill you if you really no, loved your I husband. No, I absolutely would. Oh, you I absolutely would what? I'd be happy for him. No, you wouldn't. I'd be happy for him. I remember Howard. You don't I love him. was dating a guy, and Brigitte Nielsen had just arrived on the scene. Right. And I think she was in Playboy. Right. And he was looking at those pictures, and those pictures were so amazing. I said, you know what? If she came and beckoned for you to come to her, I'd have to let you go. Well, you would not be happy. <laughs> I don't know My what whole... would have happened after that. I know that guy you were dating. Brigitte Nielsen wasn't looking for him. That's why you were <laughs> of happy. Of course she wasn't. But if it had happened, I was like, uh... you should go. You should do that. You know what my hall pass is? You porn. That's what I do. <laughs> That's where I have sex mostly on you porn. That's it. All right, Erin. Very good. You go have your hall pass. I'd kill myself. Well, she'll have to pass. climb into the th the box mm. with the Sean Connery now. I don't know. Jesus. Maybe she can get him. <laughs> but Oh, someone gave me a note. Erin's next hall pass is Bill Murray because she likes older dudes. Okay, I'm sure Bill will take you up Bill on Bill Murray? Hmm. Bill Murray. Isn't he? Is he close to getting married again? What did I, I don't read know. about him? Oh, really? Something about him with and a woman recently. Oh, good. I'm happy for him because he was pretty lonely when uh, we yeah. interviewed him. And Colin yeah. Jost did. He, he made it official. He married Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. Well, she, he she locked that down. Yeah, damn right he did. <laughs> Who wouldn't? Uh, poor JD. JD as of Friday had no idea where he was going to vote. He finally figured it out. He moved to New, he he moved from. I, I don't know if this is okay to say. I guess it is. He moved from he moved out of Manhattan. Okay. Is it okay to say that you moved to what state? Yeah, yeah. From yeah he New moved Jersey, from New York. Though. He moved from New York to New Jersey. Okay. JD. But I, I felt bad for him because I, I was reading these notes on JD and listen to this. So he moves to a new apartment, quieter suburbs, blah, 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 blah. He didn't have to go all the way to Alabama to find something. No. He's <laughs> close by. So he moved out of Manhattan, as many people yeah. are doing during COVID 19. And they're like, you know, hey, why pay the high rents and blah, 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 blah. Exactly. He gets in there. And this is my worst nightmare. So I have empathy for you, JD. Right away, the, the, was it like almost the first night you hear your neighbors yelling at each other? It, it, it took about a few days. It took a, like maybe a week. And uh, thankfully, it's only happened like maybe once or twice. It's not like a regular thing. Um, I've actually heard uh, someone behind me more. But uh, <laughs> that's a whole other thing. But, uh, you yeah, know, someone, they should have yeah. a law. They should have a law. And I'm I'm so sensitive to this. That if you're going to rent an apartment. You should be allowed by law to live there for a week, to sleep there for a week, to see what the fuck is going on. Because I lived in, when I live in apartments, 
you always have a neighbor upstairs who uh-huh. walks across the floor with high heels or some kind. There's no carpeting down. You hear them pounding on the floor. Then you have uh, a neighbor to the left and right who are busy. You can hear them right through the walls. They're yelling. They're talking. They're fighting. It I used to hear maddening. my neighbors above me having sex. Yeah. This is what oh. I'm talking about. I, I, you know, I, I can't stand apartment living. I can't stand it because of that. It, the, 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 these, most of these buildings are built paper thin. <laughs> and you go in and now you're plunking down all this money, deposits. So, you know, it's expensive. And you move in, you get your stuff in the first night in there or second night in there. People are yelling. You're hearing shit. There's mice. There's what? It's just you should have. You should be allowed to test drive that apartment for a week. Am I right, JD? Yes. Back, back at my old but apartment. But it might not uh, happen the first week. Well, <laughs> give it a week. Yeah. Give it back, a week. Back at my back at my old apartment, uh, I had two things. I had an old woman that lived next to me, and I knew her TV schedule because her TV was so loud. <laughs> I knew that she watched Judge Judy. She watched Doctor Phil at three. Judge Judy at four. Uh, she watched the Channel Seven News, so I knew what she. Thankfully, she went to bed early. But uh, let me tell then, you something: those people should be forced by law to have to wear headphones. First of all, they'd hear the show better. I love that. Uh, it's outrageous. This is apartment life, and this is what I mean about during COVID: how you got to look out for your fellow man. You can't run around and say, "I'm not wearing a mask. I don't give a shit." That's great that you don't give a shit, but what about me? I do give a shit, and it's the same with these apartments. These old people are blasting the TV, and it is so fucking loud. It's it, it, Listen, my parents are 92 and 97, and they blast that thing so loud. You hear it. When I go to see them, I hear it in the hall outside of their door. <laughs> you know where they live. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and it's it's outrageous. And I even say to my mother, put on some headphones. If you, I mean, you, you, people hear you in the hall. I'm not putting on. What do you mean? Well, you can't hear these shows. They make them the sound so low. I go, Mom, did it ever occur to you they're making the sound normal? You can't hear anything? Your father, too, can't hear it. Oh, well. It's not true. <laughs> so I, I watch these shows. The, 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 you can't hear the sound, and then they play music, and you can't hear the talking. That's right. The way they record the show, you can't hear it. They didn't have any trouble before. Yeah, did you realize when you were young, you heard just fine that like (laughs) now people are hearing you in the hall? Listen, we're not wearing any headphones. (laughs) Headphones. He says we should wear headphones. They cock the headphones. Dirty, filthy. Your head sweats and it gets on those headphones and it's dirty, filthy. To watch TV. That's right. <laughs> Ninety-year-old ears were never meant to hear a television. She said, "Quiet." But uh, yeah, you're in a nightmare, dude. And now you got a what? Do you got a year lease or two? Uh, it's about. It's almost two. It's almost two. But oh, uh, it's fine. You're gonna get it's, out of there, listen, huh? No, I mean it's it's de- it's decent enough. It's 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 uh it's okay. I, I and by the I way, don't go it. to your neighbors and say, excuse me, you know, my name is J.D. I, I, you know, you're awfully loud. Do you think they'll oh, make it dude. three times worse? <laughs> dude, they'll get worse that. instead of better. 
When I there lived was... in Hartford, Connecticut, I lived in a townhouse. The walls were paper thin. I was making no money. It was a shithole. Prison looks more attractive than where I was living. <laughs> the, the sewage in the, would back up in the apartment. Sometimes you walk oh, down, there'd be a half geez. a foot of water. It was a horrible apartment. And I remember my neighbor would just till four in the morning play loud music right next to my bedroom. Because oh. it's like the walls. You, you have an adjoining wall. And I had to get up. I had to get up at four. You know, he'd start playing. You know, I, had to, I was the morning radio guy. So I made the mistake. These were real low lives because when you have no money, you know, you're living next to people who are questionable. If I was famous, I was pretty popular in Hartford. I had zero money. I made $250 a week I had to live on and I had a wife. I had no money. I'm famous with no money. I'm in a fucking nightmare. So I knock on the guy's door. Excuse me. Hey, my name's Howard. Stern. Oh, we know who you are. Oh, like that. The guy, the guy was a real loser. I think his parents were paying for his apartment. He had real long hair. He was always high. He was living there with some girl who was pretty hot, actually. But <laughs> the two of them were home day and night. Never got a, They never went out. Two assholes, always partying. Used to hang signs on my door. If you oh. have free speech on the radio, we have free speech on your door. And, and, oh. and we, you know, like this kind of mentality. Real low lives. Probably never graduated high school. Fuckers. You know, and not because they not you know not because they didn't have the opportunity to go to high school. They're just too fucking stupid. Who knows what it was? They were the dumbest fucking people. I even tried to explain the guy. I go, dude, it's different free speech. This is where I live. I'm on the radio, doing a radio show. You just couldn't get the guy was a moron. And every night he'd be banging on my wall. Once I asked him if he could quiet uh, down late at uh, night. That was it. It was it was all out war. Bang it like like all of a sudden I'd be sleeping and right against the wall where my bed was, I'd hear. Oh. Like they're building something. Yeah, that's what he would do. And then oh. the music would come on. What a dick fuck. I when I got that to- job in Detroit, I was so fucking happy. I they put me up in a hotel. I thought I died and went to heaven. <laughs> Oh, my God. I was just like, thank you, God. I prayed to God on my knees in the middle of my morning show to get me out of Hartford. And and God answered my prayer. Got a call two days later from Dwight Douglas. So why aren't you religious? Who said I'm not? Oh, I thought (laughs) you said you weren't. You weren't sure. When you're living in Hartford and making $250 a week with no no money in sight, uh, you start believing in God. Trust me. (laughs) You don't have when anything I, else. The atheist I, I becomes look, a God-fearing man. <laughs> but you're hearing that at night? Forget it. Yeah, when I lived in Brooklyn, uh, it was literally only three apartments. Actually, I don't even know if my apartment was legal, but uh, I lived on the top floor, and someone, there used to be a business on the second floor, and then it's like someone, they moved out. Uh, someone who was friends or whatever with the landlord moved into the second floor, and they were like some shady characters and they had these speakers these bass speakers uh, and they yeah. played music constantly like rap Thumping. music all the time and <laughs> you I hear that bass boom boom, boom. Yes. Oh. yes i could not say a word i did not i just stayed up there and took it <laughs> i had a guy in my building who this fucking guy had a piano in his apartment now I, if you live in an apartment 
The only piano you should have is one of those kind of keyboards where you can like put on headphones in here. Headphones, yeah. This asshole, it was a good piano player too. I mean, at first I thought it was like a recording. But this asshole, at the same time, in the, in the middle of the night, would play the same song every night before he went to bed and woke me up. At one song, that's all it took. So I, uh, you know, I got a hold of the guy. I said, dude, you live in a fucking apartment. You don't know that other people can hear a piano. You know the walls. You, you live here. The walls are thin, you asshole. And and what did he say, Howard, when you were This guy was actually like kind of reasonable. He, he was like, you know, well, what time can I play? I said, I'll give you my schedule. And I did. I gave him my schedule. I said, here's when I'm out of my apartment. Play all you want, you fuck. <laughs> I hated this guy. He's such an entitled dick. Did he Dude, comply? Did he comply? Who? Did he work around your schedule? Who? I said to the guy, who are you, Beethoven's Jr.? Beethoven's? <laughs> yeah. That's my way of... Liberace? Who are you, hey, Liberace? <laughs> when, uh, when I first met Mary, she was living in an apartment, you know, on the east side, and she kept complaining that she used to call the guy above her Thunderfoot. He would just, like, oh. stomp in the middle of the night and play the right. radio loud. So, you know, she's not confrontational. So it was going on for like a way long time. So she wrote a really nice letter. She just, and she put it on the door. She just said, Hey, don't know if you're aware, but sometimes at night it's loud. She got a letter back from a lawyer saying that she was harassing him. And if she left another letter, she'd be, he'd have her arrested. Wow. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, when I started to make some money, I was living in an apartment and then, uh, I heard the guy above me was leaving. I just rented the apartment above me. <laughs> Never did a thing it with was, it. It left it empty, or did you left move it up empty. there? I didn't want to hear this fuck. Whoever moved in, I got to get sleep. I'm a morning guy. I got to, you know, I, I work in the morning. I work. I get up at five. Back then, I get up at four. I mean, what am I going to do? I said, this is a good investment anyway. I'll uh -huh. just buy the apartment above me. I don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> i don't spend money on anything anyway so i was like this is this is what i want to spend money on i want a good night's sleep I can't you know it. life could it's be so it. wonderful if people were cooperative but they're no. not no one's cooperative no one's cooperative we could be but, living in heaven if people just sort of looked out for each other but yeah, that's that not happening. happening no never I'm so sorry that little... JD moved into a new place and it's noisy. <laughs> it's all right. Um, let's see if I have any phony phone calls. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, By the thank way, you, Howard, JD. you. Yep. Um, I think I'm going to have to have a session on uh, the um, Queen's Gambit. Oh, did you watch it? I watched it, and isn't it, it the greatest? Disturbed me. Well, don't terribly. don't give me away. Don't get hold it. Stop. What? Don't do any spoilers. I'm only up to episode six. Oh, you're not finished. No, please do not. Because I know you. You're the queen of spoilers. You, you, <laughs> you give away things. But let me just say something to people. I'll, I'll leave it at this. Netflix, right. Queen's Gambit. Wow. Fantastic television. What do you, it's more like a it's film. It's too it realistic for me. Oh, well, I love it. I recommended it to my kids. I recommend it to everybody. If you if you want to see something on Netflix that is really superior, superior acting, filmmaking, script writing, 
uh, the, the woman who is the star of it. Gorgeous and amazing. Gorgeous and amazing. It's uh, It centers around a woman who is a chess prodigy, but uh, it, you don't have to be into chess. You know what I mean? No. Chess is just her superpower. But you know it's what really disturbed good. me was what happens to gifted children. You know, that was, yeah. it was just torture for her, her poor, her whole life. You know, nobody supported her. Nobody thought, oh, let's help this girl. She has no. a superpower and let's help her develop it. There was only, you know, it was like, ah, stop her from playing chess. Oh, that's boring. Mm. You know, it was just like, what a nightmare it's her great. life was. Yeah, yeah, no, it's heavy, but uh, it's really good. Uh, let's go to Mike from, oh, Mike That's from Maine. It. Hey, Mike, what's up? Good morning, Howard. Good morning. Hey. Hey, uh, so you're right. I actually was going to ask you about that. That show is so great, and it makes you, you know, like I know for me, I haven't played chess in a long time, so I'm trying to find someone to play chess with in person. But Chess uh, is a maddening game. I mean, I played chess. I started later in life, and uh, I, I got up. I want to say my rating was either 1,800 or 1,900. I don't remember which. Wow. But I had to stop because it becomes an obsession. And if you're like me, you want to be the best at something. And you realize if you start too old, you're never going to be the best. And I don't have the kind of brain that I don't have that kind of intelligence. It, it was a tremendous effort for me. And, you know, it killed me. I would obsess on the game. I would lay down at night and I'm trying to go to bed and I'm seeing the game I played and lost in my head and I'm playing it over and over again in my head. Because if you get to a certain level, you can start to see these things in your head and you, you play it over and over and over again and you can't believe you fucked it up. It's maddening. And my wife was complaining to me because we would go for a walk. It's our thing we do together every day. And she said, thank God you quit chess. We would be walking. And then she'd say, like, for 15, 20 minutes, you would be lost thinking about this game. I could see it in your eyes. And you weren't, you know, you weren't with me. You were off somewhere. And so it's, I have mad respect for anybody who's good at it. It requires a gift and a, and a superior intelligence and a tremendous dedication. But uh, it is. Yeah, maddening. watching it, I didn't sit and say, oh, I wish I, I think I'm going to take up chess. I was like, no, that looks like a nightmare. You never feel stupider <laughs> than when you play chess. And, 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 and I'll never forget, I went down to the, um, what's it called, the Marshall Chess Club in Manhattan. I went to be in a tournament and a fucking 12 year old, not even, I don't know how old this kid was. <laughs> I, I matched up against a little kid and he beat me. <laughs> my first match was against this woman i won that one and then the second one was this kid and the kid made mince meat out of me and i was just like I, I, this is humiliating i life experience should enter into this game a little bit no it doesn't no and i was just it ruined was your just, whole career howard it was a it, I, it, you know there was a famous painter i can't remember the guy's name he started playing chess he stopped painting and he became a chess player. It, it ruined his life. I forget the guy's name. It's a famous guy. It, 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 chess will ruin your life. If you take it seriously, it will ruin your life because you've got to be all in. Yeah, I mean, the book she was studying, I mean, my Lord. And then to read, you know, see those diagrams. I'm not good at diagrams, you know, like when. Yeah, no. Oh, you're, you're talking about. Uh, I was like, no, that that's 
I can't do that. She was reading MCO, the modern chess openings. Yeah. The Bible but she read chess. book after they they would come out, they'd have like a library they'd bring in. And she could read every one of them quickly. Yeah. Maybe you should get a bottle of tranquilizers, Howard, and give it another shot. <laughs> yeah. Well, I needed tranquilizers. I was miserable. <laughs> I like that somehow it made her sharper to be on tranquilizers than alcohol. Somehow she had a sharper mind doing that. Than well, don't ruin it for favorite. everyone. I want everyone to watch. It's uh, required homework. It's that good. Watch yeah, Queen's Gambit. It really is show. well it's done. Chess. It's a great show. Really good. Yeah. Um, so, Howard, uh, we got this new cat, and he's a cute little cat. But, I mean, the vet and my wife are saying we need to keep the t- our two cats apart for a month. We have a cat we already have. Do we, do, how long do you invest keep new cats away from the other cats? Well, the proper way to do it is... Um, if you have a cat that's been living there, you bring in a cat um, at least for two weeks. I've heard two weeks. You put the new cat in a room, and then the cats can smell each other. And this way, they don't attack each other. They get used to each other. They don't get territorial. So you keep well, them separated for like to do it, not just the uh, getting them together and giving them time, but also to make sure the one cat doesn't give the other cat something. Right. Yeah, we got to wait yes, two that's weeks. They can't even sniff each other for two weeks for the leukemia thing. I guess they said, but then yeah. right. they're like, "Give it, you know, give it at least thirty days before you get them together in a room." I'm like, I don't know, man. I feel like no. uh, I feel like a few weeks. Like you said, a couple weeks seems fine. A week or two is what I've heard, but check with your vet. Give them a call. Don't uh, call I, me. They say you give the cats as much time as they need. Yeah. Well. well all I know is yeah. my wife always believes in separating the cats and stuff, and then next thing I know, they're in the room with us. So. Well, here's the deal. I've always separated my cats. And, you know, there is something too. yeah, let them sniff each other at the door. And then you give them little play times, you know, where they're in the room together, but then they have a safe spot. That's right. Go to. Yeah, we do all that. And it works. You know, so they don't get jealous of one another. Something else, Howard. When was the last time you cried about your dog? I miss my dog like hell. My dog died last year, and I, I still miss her. Once in a while, I'll shed a couple of tears over her. I wonder when the last time you cried about your dog, Bianca. Dude, just this weekend, I was going through pictures. I was looking for some subjects to paint, and I saw a picture that I had taken possibly to paint of my cat, Sophia. And uh, this cat, I started to cry. This cat died of uh, FIP was about two years old. Cat had a miserable life. And then when we adopted her, uh, she was finally happy, finally, you know, like in a good place. And then, and then, of course, uh, I was the lucky one who got to be with the vet and watch her die. I held her in my arms when she died. It fucking wrecked me. I took those pictures. I had, a, I said, Beth, you take these pictures. I don't want to see them anymore. And then, um, yeah, that's and then I got some pictures of Bianca, my dog, who died. And I got upset about that. Then we started talking about our cat, Leon, who died. It's just, it's too much. Life is too much. It's just unbearable to be human and have emotions. It's, we're wired the wrong way. It's too much. Yeah, yeah they want to get another Dennis dog in my house. I'm not getting down. another dog for a long time. Maybe never. I don't know. I might never get another dog just because I don't want to go through that shit all the time. Every 12 or 14 years. Bullshit. Here's the way I look at it. <laughs> if you ha- If you're a good dog owner... Go save a dog that's at the pound, you know, yeah. that's at the the shelter. These poor dogs, they're in these cages. They're such pack animals. They just want to be part of your family. So try to get over it and do it for the dog. You know what I mean? Yeah, take your time with yeah. your grief. But you, you enjoyed that dog, you know. Don't rob yourself of a wonderful opportunity to spend time with a loving animal. Yeah. 
My wife oh, and I, yeah. you know, we're oh, so into this animal rescue. We're so grateful for the people who, uh, you know, adopt the animals that we take in. It's a whole fucking deal, Mike. But uh, I know what you mean. It's hard to open up your heart and then, uh, you know, with the, the, these, you know, the, the, the dog or the cat dies. It's just, it's a disaster. Thank you, Mike. I know when I first, uh, mm. fell in love with my first cat, I just looked at the cat and said, you could never die because I don't know how to live without you. But of course he did. Yeah. But Dennis had to put down his beloved Finn last week and he did it in like such a lovely way. He had the, the person come over to the house and they did it in the home with the family around. Yeah. And I've done that. He got to say goodbye to Finn. We do that, but I'm the one who holds the animals. Beth yeah. can't do it. Lucky me. It's so bad. I know. Yeah. I've done it. Never did it in the home, but I've done it in a vet's office. Yeah. Well, on that happy note, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I got Eddie Vetter coming in soon, so I should go get ready for that. But, uh, yeah. Uh, here's what I had. I got to play you. I had a couple of things about sort of election related, but I can play those for you tomorrow. I got a new flirty Gary phony phone call. I love Flirty Gary. I know. Everybody loves Flirty Gary. <laughs> I've got um, Truther Kenny, the Trump supporter, which is pretty amazing tape. He's a, he's a big Trump guy. Um, oh, man. I got so much stuff. But you know what? I'm going to take a short break, and then we'll come back and talk to Mr. Eddie Vetter, who, uh, you know, I'm dying to talk to. I love this guy. Fucking brilliant lyricist. He's a poet and a brilliant musician. Good front man. Band is fucking phenomenal. Pearl Jam. We were lucky enough, Robin and I, uh, to work at a cool radio station in the 90s called K-Rock. It was a stupid name for a radio station in New York. There was a, a legendary radio station in Los Angeles called K-Rock because all of their stations start with the letter K. Out here, yeah. it's W. And for some bizarro reason... We were named K-Rock, which made no sense. But if you put it together, it was Croc, which it was a crock of shit because it was a <laughs> dumb name. Croc. Like, we had no business being K-Rock, but it was a cool station in the 90s for those of you who were with us. We were on K-Rock, and um, we played, I guess the format was called Alternative. So we played Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Nirvana, uh, Nine Inch Nails. You name it. Yeah. All the cool stuff. And, you know, it was, uh, even though we, we, we barely played music, it was just a cool to be on a station that played all of that music. You know, our show was mostly talk. But then when we went to a record, we could play really cool music. And I got to tell you, it made a real difference because when I worked at WNBC, they played the shittiest music ever, like middle of the road crap, carpenters. Um, you know, Barbara all, all, Streisand, Barbara Streisand's evergreen, you know, I mean, <laughs> shit. And I remember doing something that I thought was funny. And then I would go WNBC and then they break into evergreen. You know, <laughs> ah, and I'm like, I feel like the unfunniest fuck on the planet. But then when we got to K-Rock, forget it. You know, you break into a Pearl Jam song. Glorified version of a pelican. And you'd be like, this is a cool station. And you, and you felt cool being a part of it. 
Right. Or Bush or Stone yeah. Temple Pilots. Stone Temple Pilots would come in on our show all the time and play. I wonder if Eddie was friendly with uh, Scott Weiland. Scott Weiland, yeah. That guy was heartbreaking. Scott Weiland was mm. so talented and so original, but the fucking guy could not get off drugs. I talked to him about it off the air once. And it was so frustrating. I go, Scott, you got the world by the balls. Oh, if I could be the front man in a band, I mean, and look cool. and He's a good looking dude, too. I kind of asked Eddie if he knew him. But, you know, anyway, well, let me take a break. And I, I got a lot. I got a lot to talk to Eddie about. But yeah. Let's let's. <laughs> it was an exciting morning. Eddie Vedder, I'm a huge fan of Pearl Jam. Love their music. Love the Pearl Jam channel here on Sirius XM. I think they're doing a great job with it. And um, we were about to meet Eddie Vedder live in our studio. They were coming in to do a concert at the Apollo Theater, the legendary Apollo Theater for Sirius XM. And then they were going to come in the next day and Eddie was going to come in and hang with us. And that all got cut off as soon as uh, COVID-19 happened, which is still, un it's just unbelievable to me, the situation we're in with this COVID-19 and the lack of the planning for some sort of war against COVID-19. But that's where we're at. And so we never got to have that moment with Eddie Vedder. And then somewhere down the line, Eddie said, hey, maybe we'll do it over Zoom. So it's worked out. So is Eddie ready, guys, or am I vamping here he's coming in right now he's coming in now okay and so uh let me see got a whole bunch of things to talk to eddie about this might have to go on for 17 hours there you are the famous eddie vetter look at you oh shoot i can't see you not fair. you can't hey guys put eddie big up on my screen and then uh yeah can you see me now Oh, I see you. Your uh, postage stamp's small, but that's all right. <laughs> you might not um, want to see me large. We do that for the guests. Uh, <laughs> they get kind of grossed out when they have to see me big. <laughs> oh, there you go. That helps. No, I was looking forward to this, seeing you. Yeah, how is that Robin? Is yeah, Robin's here. Everybody's here. I mean, um, what, this room you're in. I mean, you got guitars. All, uh, you know, it's weird. I have a room with the guitars all over the wall, except I don't play. Like it's it's much cooler if you can play. I just have them because people give me guitars. Um, what is this? Is this like a room in your home designated for music? Uh, this is a room in the in the backyard, so it's a little separate from the house, and I can make noise a little later or write and record without. Uh, but still, look back and and see the kids and see the house, and and they can see me, and and uh, that way I can still work but be close and and that was uh we organized this kind of setup a number of years ago but now we're really close <laughs> no one's going anywhere <laughs> no one's going anywhere so eddie in other words when you have to when you're working okay because being a musician is work people think it's just like all kind of fun but i mean the work the actual work of writing lyrics and writing music you go somewhere, a designated area outside of your house, you know, it's on the property, and you work. Do you do you wake up and say, honey, I'm going to work, and then, like, you treat it like a nine-to-five job, or is it only when the mood hits you? 
Yeah, I, I wish I was more disciplined. I, I think with writing, I can do that. I, th I think I, I would get in a groove where I would, you know, uh, try to get a morning session in and an afternoon session and then maybe a, a drinking session later and uh, see how many pages I'd get out of a typewriter in a day and then, and then go back and kind of mine those pages later when, uh, you know, the, the fellows come up with music or I come up with something and see what matches. But um, no, I've never been a real... I'm always curious to see, you know, hear stories about, you know, how, how Kurt Vonnegut wrote or how Francis Bacon painted or um, one of the things I realized they all had coffee involved. <laughs> Do you drink coffee? Oh, yeah. A lot. Of Seattle. It. Yeah, they're known. For, yeah. So, so let me understand this, because I, I am fascinated by the process. Like when I have Jerry uh, Seinfeld on, when he talks about comedy, he says, look, I love being a stand up comic. And every day I go to my office, I take out a yellow legal pad, and I write. And it's not even that I always come up with something great, but it's the discipline. Now, here's a guy who's got a billion dollars at least, but he loves the discipline of going into a room by himself and writing whatever it is, and then he sees where it goes and honing that material, getting the words just right. Is that your approach to songwriting? Well, I, I think... What I like about hearing that is is that you're you're that you're not upset with yourself if you don't come up with the perfect thing, you know that that's okay. It's like I use the analogy. Okay, you got now. It might not be the song you set out to write, but somewhere along the line, it became something different. You know, you you start to follow the song, and then it takes you. It leads you. So now you've come up with something. It wasn't what you were shooting for, but now it's something different and it might not be as good as you you think it needs to be and it might not get any better but in my mind it's like okay now at least i got a guy on first you know and and then you can go and then that having accomplished that will maybe get you to the next one and and i i think that uh you know i when 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 it sometimes something happens and it's just easy you know it's not homework it's just it's just that thing came and it's like it sat on your shoulder and you transmitted it as quickly as possible and you tried to stay out of the way of it and then you got a recording of it and i, I think that's the you know the thing that that i don't know if you know jerry's got it on paper and i don't know if he needs to record it to have inflections or anything but that's that's the one important thing i would say for musicians and writers is that you you do need to record it you know, there's something in the rhythm when you play it. There's something, you know, you can write down the chords, but there's something about the way you played it that one time that had a different hitch or, or push on the beat or so, something that made it sound like that different magic sound of something you never heard before. And that, that you just need to record, always record. You know, now you can kind of do it on the phones. Not that I like to, but, but in the old days, you kind of needed a, you know, recording Walkman with your, fresh batteries and your cassette tapes and you know um but when you uh, write do you eddie do you go into a room and say like like i was thinking about this I, I mean i don't have the ability to write a song and when i think of you and you've written all the lyrics pretty much for pearl jam it's like does eddie go in and channel something about his mother something about his father or a life experience like, for me, I know there was a, a defining moment in my life when my mother turned to the, the kids. 
one of the kids in the carpool said the N-word. And my mother goes, I'm black and Howard's half black. And, and she just told she, she wasn't black, but she 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 took a defining moment. I was very proud of her that she stuck up about race relations. And and maybe maybe this feeling that my father never really liked me all that much is another theme in my life that I, I talk about. So would I go into a room and start say, this is my goal. I want to write a song about my feelings about my father maybe not liking me that much. Would that be the goal, or do you just sit there and wait for the inspiration? You know, I think you could do that, or, or a good writer <laughs> could do that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> for me, I, I think I'm I'm a little overly self-conscious of wanting it to, to have some kind of purity and come from something that's like almost not of my own volition or from my own brain it's it's really kind of opening up the the airwaves or 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 putting out the feelers or getting your you know all your your nerve endings firing and and opening up to that other thing that might be out there and then those issues might come up you know i i when in into the wild came around, which was the the Sean Penn, you know, he asked me to contribute songs to this movie, and at first it was like a song or two, and then then he liked what he heard, and and he said, he said you could actually be what I'd like at this point is if you could just be the inner voice of the kid, you know, it, it would all be you singing as the inner voice of the kid, and and without being you know that was a, that was a good boundary to have, or or you know I I didn't mind the boundary at all. Actually, I wasn't used to working with boundaries, so this was going to be. I actually ended up finding it helpful. But what was happening was I was tapping into stuff when I was a kid, and maybe some of the stuff that you were dis- uh, discussing in your own life. You know those kind of things, and I could not believe how close to the surface they were. I thought this stuff had been compartmentalized, had gone out, had been recycled, had been buried with the other nuclear waste on the planet. And, um, and all of a sudden you were able to, it, it came up like you, I mean, it was a bit terrifying actually. How, how close, how still, it was still part of you. It it was that I, I, I thought it was, was buried deep, but it was, still it could be brought right up to the surface yeah i would think it's great when sean penn says to you here here's a homework assignment write this about this it's like at least it, it focuses you on something but at the same time it's it, it, when i think of great songwriters and people who write lyrics you know i, I think that my self-consciousness would get in the way in other words do you ever sit there and go oh fuck i don't know if this song is trite or not are people gonna <laughs> laugh at me or are they going to take it seriously and really get off on this? I would be in a panic. <laughs> I, I once tried to write, um, I, I have terrible OCD, uh, you know, and I tried to write a song about OCD, like a poem. It sounded like shit. I mean, it was laughable. You would laugh at me. How do you know when something is that good that you can present it to your band or you can put it out there as a record? Do you know or, or is it a complete crapshoot? I'm just curious, was the poem, was it like three words and then three lines and then four words and four, just the OCD thing? Were you writing in, I mean, were you? I don't know what I was doing. I think, I think what I used is like, I used the Nine Inch Nails song sort of as my, 
as my uh, parameter, you know what I mean? Yeah, template. And then I started writing about OCD, and it was just, it was laughable. It was laughable. I showed it to Fred, who works on the show, and he, you know, I I think he threw up. But but (laughs) because, because I don't know how to do that. And, And I wonder when you're writing, and you're writing about something personal, like your relationship with your father or something like that, do you sometimes go, oh shit? People are like the Beatles could write "Oh blah di oh blah da," and, and 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 a totally goofy trite song. I don't see Eddie Vedder doing that. I don't see you ever sitting down and writing a frivolous song. Well, I have. <laughs> oh, we have again. Heard it. Those are those are some of those guys on first, right? Right. Or maybe they're on the bench still. But um, right. you know, the one thing that reminds me is is I remember the especially feeling that way on the the second record because the first record you just kind of wrote it was your you know i'd been writing songs and you know on my own and making demos in this little apartment and being in you know smaller bands and and playing clubs and opening for other bands and and then when the seattle fellas invited me up and now we were even though we were making like a real record and my my first real record and and uh I was so glad they had faith in me, but really I was writing, you know, a lot of stuff was coming out and, and, and it was happening quick. And these were like the best musicians I'd ever worked with. And, but everything just kind of came out. It, it felt, I didn't think that if it was precious or if it, but, but but after that record actually did well, and now when we were making the second record, and then you kind of had an idea that a, a bunch of people are going to hear it compared to the first one. You know, the first one we were maybe, for some reason in my head, there was this goal of selling, if you sold 40,000 records, you could they'd allow you to make another. You know, that was like the the number we had to hit. You know, like, you know, electoral college votes. We needed, you know, 40,000 records. And then it, and then we got to that point and then it kind of kept going and going. And so by the time the second record came on, you kind of knew there was an audience there. And, and, and that's when I felt a little pressure as to, you know, could I say this or what would people think about me or what they think it was about me where, you know, before I wasn't, you know, I, I, I felt much more and isn't that free, but it didn't songwriter? last that long. Isn't that death for Eddie? Isn't that a a death sentence for a songwriter? Like as soon as you get self-conscious, like the first record was so beautiful because in a way, you know, you just wrote the lyrics. The guy sent you the music in a lot of cases and you started writing lyrics. It was so pure. And then like you've even said, the band just had too much success too quick. We weren't even allowed to kind of fuck up, go on the road, really uh, get our feet wet as live performers so much because the album hit so quickly. It's like, that second album, the pressure to sell albums and to be, and not to just be a one hit wonder. It's like, it's, it's just, it's just insane. The pressure. I, I don't think people understand it. You don't want to disappoint the band. You don't want to disappoint the record company. It's, uh, it's tough. Yeah. It's a good problem to have, you know, it, it, it uh, you know, and looking back on some of those times, I, I wish I would have handled a few things differently. You know, if, if I, you know, I think if I just would have known back then that, you know, it's going to be okay, you know, like enjoy the ride. It's a, it's a fucking roller coaster. And, and right. even though the, the thing that comes over your shoulders, even though that's broken, <laughs> you could, you know, you're going to, if someone told me kind of enjoy it, you know, like 
it's going to be okay. Um, that would have been a lot more fun, but I just didn't know that. In fact, my instincts were saying like, you know, this is not okay. And, and, you know, what's happening? You know, we, we got in a band to, to kind of be our own boss and, and be a gang and, and make our own decisions. And, and then it felt like we were kind of, you know, and, and these were good people, you know, they were working hard for our record. I mean, it was nice of them to do that. And, and, but there was, you know, it was really moving quick for us. And, um, and I admit it, it was a little hard to handle, but I, I think that was because we were coming at it as real people, <laughs> right? You know, not not someone who, you know, wanted either wanted you know the the, the uh, like a celebrity or high recognition uh, that just was just never something we even considered, and and so, you know, we had a little bit of a, a difficult relationship with with that reality, and. Um, and I think that's okay because we were, you know, real people about it. But also we weren't, you know, that, that made us a little vulnerable. Uh, yeah, you know, I could imagine. It affected a few people in our town and, and we had a good scene here and, and it, you know, it, it changed a little bit, you know. And, and then, you know, I hang out, you know, some of my crowd back in the day, they kind of held our band in, you know, great disdain. <laughs> well, so you know, well, you some know, people in the world liked you, and some people just, uh, you know, they they either resented it or or just hated your music or whatever, and 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 I agreed with them on all points. <laughs> Did you, you I resented myself being on the side of a bus, <laughs> but, but, you know, on but, an ad but Eddie, for a radio station. Eddie, d- did you take it personally? At the time when, when, when the band started out and like a guy like Kurt Cobain would publicly dismiss your band and say, you guys were too commercial or too pop or whatever the fuck he said. And like, did, I don't know why he even said that you guys ended up being friends and everything. And, and he ended up appreciating you, of course. But is that, did that shit get to you at the time? Were you like, why has everybody got to be so goddamn competitive? I, you know, it, it, I mean, I understand it, but I think that he probably resented you because you were popular and he probably felt like he was in competition with you in some weird way, you know? Well, I, I didn't, uh, you know, like I said, I, I probably could have agreed with some of the things he said. And there was also a history of, you know, some of the local bands. And one of my favorite Seattle bands was Mud Honey. And, and there was a little bit of a faction of this, this one side of, Seattle music here and and ours didn't fit as well into that, which was fine. Um, right. But also, Mud Honey, I became those were kind of. I was so grateful to have those guys as friends, and so we. I think the only thing that bothered me about that was because it was it was more public and people reacting to it. You know, I it wasn't like between us or that stuff wasn't really going back and forth with us. And I think there was a, a certain writer who kind of pulled a quote of Jeff Amons out and then pulled a quote, a quote of Kurtz out and then kind of, you know, that, that made for interesting, you know, uh, press, uh, press paper thing. But, uh, you know, really I always felt like it was kind of us against the world, like our town against the world, not, not our band against another band. We were, just I still think back and and have always been grateful that there was like 
a a real scene. I mean, it was like a real. There was music everywhere, and people were hanging out like, you know, every night. And after the show at the Crocodile, when three or four bands would play, and Girl Trouble, and the Melvins, and da da da, and then there'd be like an after party in someone's basement and this cool old house you know in seattle that was kind of ramshackle and then all of a sudden you know chris novoselic would be playing bass and you know i'd be playing drums there's you know and we're playing beatles songs and this guy you know fastbacks kurt block playing it was really one of those times you know i was thinking that there was a oh shoot what's the that california they've been a couple a couple movies lately documentaries about the uh Oh, we'll be thinking, oh, I can't uh, even think about it. The birds and Joan. Yeah, that, yeah, that whole scene. That they were all in. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that whole scene up in California when the mamas and the papas and uh, yeah. everyone go over to Zappa's house. Like, yeah, that's what the Seattle thing was kind of like, wasn't it? I mean, it, it, it had to be magical. It reminded me of that a little bit, you know. We, it, and it hasn't been that Laurel Canyon. Well, but Laurel yeah. Canyon, that's That it, was man. it, yeah. yeah. It was crazy. But, I mean... What a great time, like the, like those bands. You know, I, I was just, I was saying before you came on, I was talking for some reason about um, the guy from Stone Temple Pilots. Um, Scott uh, Weiland. Scott, Scott Weiland. Yeah. Did you know him at all? Because Scott used to do the show with me all the time. And I was talking about how magical the radio station was. We we were on an alternative station. It was weird. It was called K-Rock for some reason. It was on in New York, but it was K-Rock. And mm-hmm. and we had all, you know, we were playing Pearl Jam. We, it was a very cool radio station to be a mm-hmm. part of. Uh, but we also played Stone Temple Pilots, Nirvana, you know, Nine Inch Nails. It was just a sound garden. And um, I, I, this guy, it would drive me crazy that Scott was so talented, so brilliant, such a good-looking front man. Like, he had all the moves. He had everything that, if, like, if you look for a lead guy, it, and yet... He, he, it was so frustrating. He could not pull his life together and get off drugs. He just said, I can't do it. You know, sometimes. Did you know him at all? It's a shame. No, never met him. Oh, I thought maybe. Yeah, I don't know. For some reason, I thought maybe you knew him. Mm-hmm. It's uh, It was so frustrating to, to, to see that. But in any case, I, you know. I don't know why. I, I feel like sometimes if you're that handsome, it's going to something. I don't know. <laughs> Is that it? It's going to. I don't know. You don't see yourself as handsome. Do you see yourself (laughs) as handsome? Hi, Robin. Hi there. Do do you see yourself as handsome? I see you as a really good-looking guy. Like uh, I'm like, (laughs) hey, I'd like to look like Eddie Vedder. You know, you got to kind of have a cool look to to be a front man. Um, You don't see yourself that way. Uh, I don't really see myself. I don't think about it. You don't? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you do. Because when you're a front man for a band. You know, and you and you look at some guys like Mick Jagger's approach, like he dances. James Brown danced. I, I wouldn't call you a guy who dances. I'm fascinated with frontmen. Like I always thought when you would be climbing, when you would be climbing up on rafters and risking your life and, and like doing crazy stuff. I said, Eddie does that because he doesn't dance and he's got to hold the audience's attention. So this was my theory on you. The reason for risking your life, climbing up on the rafters, throwing yourself around, it was your form of dance. It was your way to hold the audience's attention. We would have been satisfied just watching you sing. You could have stood there like Oasis as far as I was concerned because you had the voice and you had the songs. But I think in your mind it was a way like you felt compelled to entertain that audience. Am I right about this? You know, I think part of it actually, uh, you know, I... 
there's something you know i was i went i love music i loved music i love music and i i loved live music and i would work for free for some you know so i would hump gear during the day so i could uh get into the show you know i could see five shows a, a week you know because i didn't have to pay i just show up at four hump some gear see the show and then go work at the midnight shift you know either at the hotel or the petroleum company you know midnight shift security that was my deal for about five years and you know and then that way i could get some work done in the middle of the night and you know it's it it pretty good setup looking back like um if you had to do a job but it was also my way of kind of pretending that i was a musician or a working musician or something um but i would be in the crowd and then you know sometimes you'd wait i mean like you mentioned nine inch nails who just were like when they first came out, you know, they were blowing our minds, you know. Right. And 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 no disrespect, there was so much excitement, but we went up to Los Angeles to see them. And I think we stood in that crowd, small, compressed, super excited. The lights were down. The smoke was on. They had all this kind of, they had this kind of visual effect where they had like a... Films. Old 35 millimeter film thing, you know, floating and blowing in the fans and whatever. This went on for three hours. You know, we just <laughs> waited for right. three hours. And, you know, you, there were times when, like, after two, you were getting kind of pissed. And, and of course, when they came out, they just, you know, blew our minds. So, you know, all is forgiven. Uh, but during those, that was just it, 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 during those times. You know, I'd be at the at the Metro in Chicago. Or I'd be at a, a you know, you'd be in one of those theaters that had kind of an ornate, you know, and, and the the king and queen booze on either side and curtains and all that stuff. And while I'm waiting for the next, you know, waiting for the band in between, waiting and waiting, I used to look at that stuff and go like, man, it would be fun to climb that curtain. And then jump into that red velvet king and queen booth. And then you could get to the middle and then you could hang off that light thing, <laughs> do a little monkey bars and then flip into the crowd right near where the soundboard is. Like that was just came from me being bored in between shows, giving myself like a mental exercise. I don't know. I never thought I'd ever have the opportunity to do it. But you when I, the opportunity came, I was you like, did oh, it. I've been waiting for this for a long time. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I am so the opposite of that. I am not a risk taker with my, you know, like physically, I, I'd rather just hide in the house. When I would see you climbing and really like, like almost like a guy without a net, like a, like in a circus or something, I'd say, wow, this is unfucking believable. And I was thinking like, you know. Do you never worried about being paralyzed or like falling on your head and and then, then it would all be over? I mean, I was like, this guy's got too good a life to be doing that. But you didn't see it that way. Well, we were 24, 25. The music right. was like, you know, <laughs> the music <laughs> was powerful. And you know what? It was always, I don't think I ever did any of that, you know, kind of crazy evil Knievel shenanigans, except for during one song, which was called Porch. And and the whole thing about that song 
was celebrating like you know this we are alive for one time you know anything could happen at any moment like you know the the ice cream truck could hit you tomorrow <laughs> you know you have you know that that was the whole idea of it let's all you know i think so much of our music or our songs is is like let's let's you know live in the moment you know right and so that was my version of you know, that was my extracurricular expressing the meaning of the song and, you know, and getting everybody to, to live in the moment with me. Now, I didn't mean to be risking their health and safety at the same time. Um, you know, most of the times, I mean, it's amazing that, uh, you know, it really did work out pretty much every time. There was never... <laughs> no losses oh, or broken fingers or anything. Are you kidding? If I was in the band with you, I would have sat you down and said, listen, dude, you're my meal, you're my meal ticket. You mm. cannot fuck this up. You are not allowed <laughs> to climb on any rafters or throw yourself into the audience. Uh, but uh, did they ever sit yeah, you down and Howard go? Yeah, we Howard locked up. <laughs> I know. They, no one lets me move. <laughs> Eddie, did the band ever sit you down and go, listen, you got to stop this. You're risking your life on our shows and I, we need you. Badly. Well, you know where I, I really looking back when you when you when, uh, put it that way, I, it it really is a bit disturbing because um, <laughs> you know the reason I was in the group was because they lost their singer to uh, you know Andrew Wood to a, yeah. a heroin overdose from mm. Mother Love Bone. So yeah, that I think that that is that was irresponsible looking back, but. I, I I think that uh you know it, it it definitely made you know it was also our our first tour and 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 you know you you've been pent up you this is like the job you've wanted you know your, your whole, whole life, life. and oh. and you get a shot to to make an impact and and <laughs> for better or worse or maybe it was just you know bordering on silly but but you know also i have to say you know this was also came at a time when when you were going to punk rock shows and and fishbone and angelo's jumping in the crowd with his saxophone and getting passed around and and you're jumping right. on the crowd you're seeing the clash you're seeing you know uh gherkin rock you're seeing all these you know ramones you know everyone's like climbing on stage jump off the stage get thrown back up get kicked in the head get you know slammed on the ground someone's stepping on your hair someone's pulling you up they're ripping your hair out then you go back and do it again uh, so popped, that was taking popped, razor blades yeah. and cutting himself on stage well <laughs> it's pretty wild so so it wasn't you know you know it was, i think it was part of a you know you were just it was part of the art you know art form that's what's funny right. about it. <laughs> yeah, but it's part of it wasn't on you know, it wasn't the most unusual thing to to uh you know, throw yourself off a balcony into a crowd. It, it wasn't, you know. Eddie, you know, this whole I mean, there's so much I could probably do a fifteen hour interview with you just on your growing up because uh, to me it is one of the most saddening and 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 it, it, it is mind blowing to me how you grew up and how you grew up and you're still sane, you know, that you didn't. I'm okay like, now. <laughs> are you okay? I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm so curious about this because for, for those of you who don't know, I mean, you, you, you were born in Chicago, right? And, and then your family moved to San Diego. The guy 
your mother and father, in, in fact, lied to you your whole life. You know, at two years old, your parents divorce. Your mother remarries. And she presents to you that the guy she remarried is your real father, your biological father. It is, Eddie, I want to say I'm sorry for this. Not that I had anything to do with it, but I just know the pain that that must be when a parent, why, you know, it, it's so crazy to me. And then the additional pain that when your your, your parents divorce, your, your stepfather leaves your, who wasn't even nice to you, um, you find out that your real father was alive, that he was a guy who used to visit the family as a family friend. The whole thing is, is, is too, it would take me 9 billion visits to a psychiatrist to unravel it. And my anger would be off the roof, off the, you know, off the, off the charts. It, it's, it, what was it like for you? And, and, and did you ever say to your mother, mom, why didn't you tell me my biological father was my biological father? Well, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I think I've, I've, uh, I think I had to come to terms with, with most of that stuff, if not all of it pretty quickly for, for one reason I was, uh, young and, and, uh, I, I had to kind of keep my shit together and, um, and and then since then I, I I feel like you know my mom and I have just a great great relationship and I've tried with uh, some of the other people you've mentioned too with less success but um, you know what do you mean the, Eddie and Eddie are you saying that you've forgiven your mother for not telling you that your biological father was your biological father and why would your biological father go along with that you know. It, 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 you must have a billion questions about this whole <laughs> childhood. I mean, it's 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 not it's something I can't comprehend. It's something you would never do to your kids. You know, I mean, it's hard well, to understand. Yeah, you know what's interesting is is uh, you know think about this uh, the the father that I thought was mine. Uh, and I had three younger brothers and we're extremely, extremely close. And, and, and that, Howard, was their logic in not saying, and this is 1969 or something. Right. And their logic was, we want them to feel like brothers and they don't, we don't want them to feel separated and like stepbrothers and, you know, nowadays it's much different. Nowadays you have single moms raising kids. It's not a, it's not a social pariah. You know, you have stepbrothers, you have families, you have, you know, but, uh, I think the, that logic was there, whether it was skewed or not. But, um, you know, I, I, going back to when my mother told me at, I reckon 15, 16 or something, uh, about, who my real father was, I was, I was, uh, so because the, the guy I thought was my dad, I, I was kind of not being treated well by him. This guy Muller, your name was Ed Muller growing up, um, right? Yeah. Mueller, Mueller, Eddie yeah. Mueller. And this guy Mueller becomes your father. <laughs> and not only, I mean, who knows what his deal was, whether he resented you because you weren't his biological son, he treated you poorly and by poorly was he physically abusive or was he just a, a, a mentally abusive guy well i i uh uh 
Yeah, I blocked some of this out, but uh <laughs> right. I think that you know, and I was probably oh wow, I can't, you know. I I want to say like I was probably a little bit of a out of control teenager, but but you know, my my parents were splitting up and uh I was upset about that. My mom took my brothers to Chicago. I stayed in California. Uh, I was like working at the Long's Drugs and, um, you know, riding my skateboard. But but, but, but Eddie, Eddie, that's amazing. I mean, uh, at 15, you're living on your own. You're going to school and you're working to support yourself. Uh, The famous story was you went to your teachers and uh, the teachers were complaining about your grades. And you said you opened up your backpack and you showed them (laughs) your bills, your electric bill, your, 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 you know, your car bill, whatever the hell it was. And you, and yeah, you say, they, listen, you think I got to worry about school? I got like, look at these bills I got. I got to worry about the paying bills. I'm 15 years old. Yeah. And Mr. He, Moreno said, you know, you missed another test. This is reality. And I pulled out my bills. I said, no, sir, this is reality. But you laugh about it. But I mean, that is so sad. Yeah, cause it all worked out so well. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but I but, used what, every little bit of this for every, you know, now I can relate to the downtrodden. Now I feel like I can, you know, I know what it's like to be under the lion's paw. Had I not been through any of that, you know, I, I, you know, my whole life would be a sham. Well, when Pearl Jam <laughs> came to you, what, what is now Pearl Jam, when those guys said, hey, here's your audition, here's some music. The first song you wrote was was alive, right? And and you were basically it was about your father, about your father and the, this abandonment issue. Right. I mean, the, the, yeah. it's it's essentially this horror in your life is what got you into Pearl Jam and working with those guys. Yeah. And that was a few years after I found out. So it, it must have still been uh, resonating and, and, and not dealt with. But see, then you you do get to make some music of it. And and then then you've you've got some place to put it you actually made something out of it you know you've made something out of complete shit <laughs> right and that's the good thing about you know the arts or painting or you know writing but um but let me just clarify one last thing uh just that you said you know when when my mom told me that this guy wasn't my father and it was somebody else you know that was it, it was a shock but i was i was so grateful in a way. I mean, I was like, oh, fuck. Like, thank God, you know, because I really didn't. I didn't come out of this point. guy's balls. I mean, uh, <laughs> I don't have any genetic re- relation to this guy. But but what about the, what did you do with the anger at never, like, understanding this guy? I, I mean, this guy who used to be a friend of the family was actually your biological father. Mm-hmm. It, 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 what about the anger of like well, I could have spent time with this guy? I understand the guy was a musician. Like I could have, I could have talked to him about music and my love of art. And it, 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 w- w- did you ever go to a shrink to resolve all of that? I've been to shrinks, but not really to, not really. I I, I tell you, I I, uh, I really think I've channeled it into other things I, I don't feel uh you know i'm looking up his guitar my mom went to a funeral when i was probably about 14 and then she brought back this guitar it was only my second guitar i had my first electric and then she brought back this kind of spanish acoustic guitar and she said you know this guy wanted you to have it and i thought well that, that was very nice of him but 
think of me, and I only remember meeting him a couple times. But you know, it's there, and it's it's there, and and I. It, 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 the strange thing about it is, I won't play it for like a year. I'll pull it down, and it's always in fucking tune. It's the weirdest thing. Wow, like that's unusual. It's like he's keeping it in tune. But and that was your father's um, guitar. That was your your biological father's guitar. Yeah, yeah. So there was these little connections, and and uh, you know, I I I I don't I just don't see the point of of living a life with regrets of of nothing I can change. You know, it wasn't of my own doing. I I can't get upset with myself, and I I don't I would don't even want to. I don't have a bandwidth to get upset at other people for it anymore. You know, I I just think that uh, you know I think about all the you know, issues that people have in the world. Or, I mean, to be honest, I was, you know, you could say I was fortunate to be born a white male in the United States of America. You know, I, I'm not going to complain about some stuff that, that happened that, you know, in some amazing. ways. I'm amazed you, by that, Eddie. I'm amazed by that. I, I, th- I, you know, I go to a psychiatrist. I got to tell you, my anger's off the chart and I don't have anywhere near the kind of upbringing you had. I mean, if, if it, it's just, a, and, and, and in your household, let me, let me get it straight. Your, your, your parents also took in, um, uh, like uh, adopted kids, like kids, uh, you know, who they took in a lot of kids, I guess, as well, a business. It, it, uh, it was a little different than that. It was actually, they, there was a home for boys. I, I want to say it was the Lake Bluff home for boys. It was in Evanston. Um, the, the house is still there. Um, it's right, uh, near the train tracks in, um, in Evanston, Illinois, north of Chicago. And, um, uh, the father was going, he was going to law school. And so they, they volunteered, you know, they were, you know, they, they could, uh, help pay for his schooling. And then my mom and he would kind of be in charge of these up to six to eight um, kind of kids that didn't have parents. It was like a home for boys, you know, and, and the ages were between, you know, so I went from like the oldest kid and of my brothers, of which there was just turned, there was three. Um, and, and then, so I was probably eight, but now all of a sudden I had like 12 to 16 year old brothers and, mm-hmm. you know, all living under black, the same roof you know, with you. All under same roof, all pretty troubled. And, um, but man, that basement, it had the turntable and they had the record collections. You know, they, everyone <laughs> contributed their records. So we had James Brown and Sly and the Family Stone. And, you know, my contribution was early Jackson 5. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> Really, and, Jackson Five, but were you? But, yeah. but weren't you resentful of like here? You're, you know, you've got brothers. You're living in this house. It's hard to get attention from parents, uh, as it is. Um, your, your your father's kind of disconnected, and and now you've got to share your home with like fifteen other kids who are all in there who are strangers. It probably wasn't the safest environment either. Because who knows what these kids were up to? Who knows if were they abusive? Were they angry? Were they were they were they lashing out at you for having parents? You know, I, I, it sounds like to me it sounds like a nightmare. It, it doesn't sound romantically fun at all. Well, you know, in in some ways, I I became 
uh, brothers. I, I, there was a guy called Nick. There was a guy called Maurice. I mean, they, they were like my brothers. And wow. I guess we were together about two years, at least two years. Um, and uh, You still you know, know these guys? It was a little rough and tumble. No, I, I actually think I attempted to look for them right after we made our first record. I, I, I tried to find, see if I could look them up. But, um, and I think that was almost, that's before internet, right? I need, yeah. so yeah, I, I, um, uh, no, I've never, um, never heard or seen, but you know, there was interesting, some interesting things that happened. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I think it was again, you know, not all of it was good, but uh, uh, you know, it was a it was a a different kind of thing, and and that's that's how I felt. I, I, I you know, there's a line in 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 Tommy, it's the Who, and 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 Rogers Tommy is singing to the crowd, and and he says, uh, uh, "Hey, you." Smoking Mother Nature, don't try to gain my trust. Hey, you, uh, you know, whatever. Hey, you, uh, Mr. Normal. You know, that was the guy I didn't want to be. I didn't want right. to be Mr. Normal. And kind of the way I was brought up, I was worried about just like being Mr. Normal. And so even when my mom told me that, you know, my dad wasn't my dad, I thought, well, that's a, that's a fucking interesting twist. Like my life got way more interesting at that moment, you know. And and and, and how do you, in the midst of all of this craziness, how do you find music? Okay, it wasn't I know these David kids. Copperfield. I mean, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. no, it's pretty bad, Eddie. I mean, you can laugh about it, you can joke about it, but it's a, it's the, some of the shit you're describing. Just think about your own kids. Would you put them through any of this? And the answer is, of course, no. Yeah, I, you know, you, you well, know, but I'd know. be making a choice to put them.